We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. I definitely liked the second half of this film a lot more because things finally slow down and we get to spend time in this place and discover this place. And credit to the filmmakers, the animation for Atlantis is truly amazing. Which is saying something, because, like, we can talk about this a little bit. I feel like the animation, like, everything else in this movie is very inconsistent. (laughs) Sometimes it's incredible, and other times it feels like I'm watching a Scooby-Doo episode. (laughs) It's all over the place, but I will say, so I I know that we haven't mentioned it yet, but, like, the initial scene for the movie where we see Atlantis get destroyed, Mm -hmm. that actually was changed later in production there was a prologue scene that had already been animated when they decided last minute, ah, actually, that didn't work. So that the initial scene sets up Atlantis, it sets up what's happened to it, it sets up these three characters that are supposed to be important on the Atlantis side of things. The father, the mother, and Kida. And everyone who talks about this scene is like, oh, this was the right decision to do, it's better (laughs) for the storytelling, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? I'm going to say... No, you're all oh. wrong because this scene is supposed to operate as Kida's introduction. But 40 minutes later, nobody remembers Kida. By this point, Kida is a full grown, she's a completely different character. So it, it, the scene of her mom being taken up, we don't even really need to see that. It could have just been stated, this is what happened to Kida's mom. And you could have sort of sit with the gravity of that. I, I, yeah, I fundamentally disagree. I'm partially because I, like, know what the previous scene was going to be. And I think that in terms of, like, if you choose between the two, that originally they were going to have a scene of, like, I think Vikings finding the Shepherd's Journal. Which is, like, not important because if this this was a movie about them going to find the Shepherd's Journal, absolutely important. It's not. The Shepherd's Journal's already been found. The Shepherd's Journal's kind of like a weird red herring in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie because you think it's going to be about the Shepherd's Journal. Turns out we already have it. I think that 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 opening scene would have been pretty weak. That's it. I do think there are a couple issues with the opening Atlanta scene. I agree. They should have made it a little more clear that Kida is the same character. Like, I think it's pretty easy to pick up on. And they do when she tells Milo that her mother was taken. We see little, like, snapshot flashbacks oh to the my intro. Oh, God. Which is not my favorite thing, because, like, we should be trusted to remember that. But if your concern was we've forgotten Kida, they sure do remind you. Oh, my God. That was such a bad scene. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> let me finish my point. <laughs> please, please. They do a couple of things where you know that there are people, like, following our crew and stuff, which works because you've had the intro. I think it would have been kind of cool if Atlantis was a complete surprise. Which, like, it doesn't get to be if you've seen the beginning and you've seen the little characters scurrying along. But I think it it works within it not being a surprise, the scene and the characters. And I think that the really crucial thing that you have to get from that opening scene is because when Kida explains it, she's just like, there was a bright light, my mom was taken away. But because you see it, you're able to then instantly recognize what's happening to Kida when it happens. It's, like, very clear. It's the same, like, their eyes go the same blue as the crystal. The light shines down. So I think that just for the sake of having that parallel, it makes it a lot easier to be like, oh, sh**, the same thing's happening to (laughs) Kida as her mom, and her mom never came back. So I think for that reason, it definitely works. Um, I think that there are, for sure, it could have been refined more. And since it did come in at a later stage, I think, you know, there were still some some issues there, but like I, the previous scene they were going to have would have been completely like a waste of the runtime of this movie. <laughs> and it already has so many <laughs> pacing issues. <laughs> I agreed that the, the initial prologue scene that they had planned would have been dumb as well. I'm saying they're both equally weak for different reasons. The opening scene it's really just like two minutes and all you see is Atlantis get destroyed. You really needed to see the father talking to the daughter about 
oh, Atlantis is the greatest country in the world and everyone else sucks. I don't know. Just there needs to be some kind of establishing dialogue between the parents and Kida that allows us to at least have an initial emotional connection to these three characters because it happens so fast that you're not really sure what's happening anyway. And you know that you should be caring about these characters, but the way it's filmed, it could have been any character that this is happening to. It's so generic. You don't really get any sense of their personalities or anything. So in that sense, it's a completely wasted scene because it doesn't actually develop their characters. It just says, this is Kida. This is her mom. This is her dad. This thing happened. And that's it. It's just a, a wasted opportunity that feels irrelevant 40 minutes later when we're reintroduced to Kida and we basically have to relearn who her character is. Because, frankly, we never really learned her character in the first place. And I think you make a good point that it, it, it sets up certain elements that happen later in the film. But I feel like that's the same issue with the Viking prologue. Like, that's not the most important thing that you're going for here. Is that when your eyes turn blue, that means you're getting sucked up into the crystal. So what are you calling this precious level? Super Saiyan with blue hair dye? Like, in theory, <laughs> I can see what they're going for. But the final product just isn't quite there. So in terms of, like, what this movie is trying to say. Because <laughs> it's trying to say a couple of things, I think. The effectiveness of which uh, questionable in certain parts. But, like... So the crystal is like, it's magic, but they try and make it sound like science. Um, but like, is basically powered by like the emotions and etc. of all the Atlanteans that came before. It's a like sort of like crystallized ancestor worship. So there's the whole thing about the king talks about how he tried to harness this power for war. And because of that, he was acted against by the crystal. Um, and that's what doomed Atlantis. And so like, there's something kind of interesting there. And I agree, like, if he had been shown to be much more arrogant and etc. in the opening, that could have been a cool tie-in for that. Because I think that the movie is trying to say something about, like, what you use power for, which is somewhat tied into Rourke. Who I think, I think you, you made, like, a, a noise or an exclamation when Rourke is having his little villain speech. Which, like, <laughs> I kind of adore Rourke and Helga as villains. Especially in the context, again, of 2001 and Disney is they're pretty interesting. But like, <laughs> Rourke is very much, uh, I mean, he calls himself an adventure capitalist, which you were like, yeah. dumb joke. I'm like, that's the best joke. <laughs> he points out to Milo. He's like, where the f*** do you think like all those things in the museum came from? Do you think we should be giving those back to the cultures? And I was like, a slam from Disney. Which was cool, actually, because I feel like that presaged a lot of discussions happening now about how a lot of the exhibits in museums are the result of stolen artifacts from other people's lands. Yes, absolutely. I think parts of Atlantis are like way ahead of its time. I know. Rourke standing there, white man villain. It's really interesting. And um, unfortunately, you get this one scene of Rourke monologuing, which I think is is super interesting and fascinating. And and that's that's what you get. That's the it, same yeah. as like the one the one scene with the king is when they really talk about power, and that's kind of what you get. Those are both like I think interesting ideas, concepts, things to be saying. Um, and there's certainly something sort of tied in with the work thing about the fact that they try and conceal Atlantis from the rest of the outside world when they go back, and Milo decides to stay and try and help them also like recover their culture, which we can talk about the oh, optics yes. of a white man <laughs> being the one to help brown people recover their culture uh-huh. in a sec. But I think that, yeah, to go along with the, with the pacing issues, the other issues, the movie is trying to say interesting things and doesn't have the time to say that properly. And on that note, like there does seem to be a very interesting theme about the idea of war, because again, this movie's set in 1914. World War I is gonna happen. They build this giant submarine that is basically a weapon. They bring weapons into, into Atlantis. And there's, there's a very interesting dialogue about that between Rourke and the king, where the king is like, if you're just adventurers, why are you bringing weapons in here? 
And Rourke tries to spin it as, well, weapons just help us deal with certain obstacles when they come up. And then there's also the reveal that the king used the crystal as a weapon for war, and that backfired and resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths and the sinking of Atlantis and all that jazz. I'm not quite sure what it's trying to say. It never quite lands the punch, so to speak. But there are elements there. I mean, if you're willing, you can read into them and sort of come to your own conclusions about war is bad, but like it's it's trying to say something more interesting than that, and it doesn't quite get there. And it's the same thing with greed, and it's the same thing with cultural appropriation, and the same thing with stealing other cultures and it's super fascinating to see and Disney had tried to do that with like Pocahontas and it gave us such a sugar-coated bullshit narrative. And I guess, actually, I don't know if they, if this was backed by Disney, but like Avatar came out later, very simplistic take on colonialism. This movie actually aims to give it the nuance that it needs. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't quite get there. Yeah, I mean, there's something interesting about the fact that the crystal, which is this weapon of, like, both power and protection, is, like, made up of the past, essentially. It is powered by the past. And the white villain trying to take that away from the native people and, like, use it as a weapon is interesting. Yeah. That subtext there, like you said, they're trying to say something. They're trying to... It's kind of the anti-Pocahontas in, in some ways. The worst hangover I get from Pocahontas is how it reinforces this comfortable lie that white Americans are fed from birth. That things were a little tense at first, but ultimately the whites and the natives got along and everything was fine. Like seriously, the movie both sides is the whole issue. The bad guys are the people that come in here and seek to exploit this culture. But again, not so much with the, the time given to it. That said, it's a better movie than Pocahontas, and I will fight anyone on that. Oh, I agree. Like, Pocahontas is bad for many, many different <laughs> reasons. When when you learn about also, like, the behind the scenes of, like, how the thinking that went into Pocahontas' design, especially, and we can actually yeah. talk about that here as well, because Kita, on the one hand, a lot of people jump-started their puberty from this movie. <laughs> on the other hand, it continues this trend of especially brown Disney characters being uber-sexualized in children's movies in the way that you would never see Belle or Snow White or anyone else get sexualized. Yes. I think we should talk about race at this point, because I think that this movie is so confused. Because it's really trying. I mean, like we mentioned earlier, it's a diverse cast of characters. They're really trying to to do this. And I think like in opposition to brown characters being overly sexualized, you have someone like Audrey, who's, she's in like overalls the entire time. She's not in any way, shape or form sexualized. She's super cute. She's just kind of left to be like a mechanic, but she's also like feminine in her own way. And so there's, on the one hand, her, I think she's an excellent representation of just, like, letting a character be. <laughs> and then you have Kita, who, again, is great in so many ways, but, you know, is wearing... She's basically wearing a bikini the entire film. Yes, she's wearing, like, a little bikini top and a skirt, and she takes the skirt off at some point. And, oh boy, do they really emphasize her booty. She got a great ass For a children's film. It's possibly my least favorite moment in the entire movie where she is taking off her little skirt wrap thing so she and Milo can go swimming to look at these murals. And it's very much like she's looking over her shoulder and she's like, do you swim? Oh, I swim pretty girl. Pr pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Swim good. Pretty good. I swim pretty good. Yeah, we get Kita's hot. I'm not like fundamentally opposed to Kita's outfit entirely. Like I think it could have been way better, but like okay, oh, sure, but, like, I... You could tell that it was only men working on this film. <laughs> yes, I think that, like, there's a way they could have done an outfit that is less covered up than the Victorian, you know, people coming in that wasn't there to be sexy. 
and make Kita sexy. Because Kita's going to be sexy on her own. Kita's hot. She doesn't need to be wearing, Yeah, she's like, double C thick. <laughs> she doesn't need to be wearing a bikini to, like, be really hot. So, yes, there's that. And I think that there's, like, yeah, in terms of race, it's interesting because we do have these very diverse characters, some of whom are handled super respectfully. And then the Atlanteans are varying degrees of that. The most egregious thing being that they have forgotten how to read their own language and the white man must come in and teach their own language to them, which is bad. That is a bad trope. That is actually the worst part of this movie. It is remarkable how this movie gets so much right and so much wrong. This is going to be another weird reference, but the movie Crash, which (laughs) was about like how racism is bad. Wow. You know, it it handles racism in such a dumb, blunt, simplistic way that you don't learn anything new from it. This movie treats it with nuance until it doesn't. <laughs> and it's just yes. like, I'm curious, like, how much of it is just a product of its time? And it's clear, I don't know too much of the background of how much research they did to this if they had if they consulted with pacific islanders because that's basically where this culture is derived from but it is all the directors and writers are white men so when you have the trope of the white savior coming in and being like i'm going to read for you and help you reclaim your culture it's like in theory that's a good thing it's sort of It's writing a wrong that's happened. But the way it's executed, oh boy, does it leave a lot to be decided. Yes. I mean, there's no real explanation for why they would have forgotten how to read. Here's the problem. We're shown that they live a super long time. So multiple people are alive that were alive when the giant wave happened. I think if like we'd had not had that thing and have these people be descendants... Uh, then I guess maybe maybe the reading might have died out, but uh. yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense that like they would forget or what the it, what exactly the value is in forgetting. I think it suggested that the king basically enforced illiteracy on the people so that they wouldn't be able to find the crystal. <laughs> That is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. There needs to be something more there, you know, to explain his reasoning for wanting to keep the crystal secluded, for thinking that just because he used it for wrong, that somebody else will use it for wrong. Uh, I think, and that's even a, that's a deep, <laughs> that's really reading into the subtext, because there's not, yeah. <laughs> there, we're not actually told that. You know, that it's the king who's made this happen. We're told basically that their culture is decaying. The power of the the crystal or their power force is weakening. And that every year, more and more of the city just falls away. So I think that the idea of them forgetting how to read is part of this cultural decay that's happening because they've been trapped here. But that's not how it works. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Uh. If people are trapped and isolated, their culture doesn't really decay. For sure, like, you could argue that a lot of the city was destroyed when the wave hit. So maybe, like, maybe they didn't have craftspeople and of a certain kind. So maybe they lost the ability to, like, build their flying machines, for instance. That could make sense. It, the city continuing to crumble away could mean they're losing more history, culture. That totally would work, makes sense. Them forgetting how to read does not make sense. Yeah. In any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. Because it's like um, in Interstellar. I'm sorry I keep making references to other movies. Yeah, you really do. This is how I understand the world, Morgan. I have to, mm-hmm. everything's a reference. But in Interstellar, they have this idea that, you know, the world is ending, crops are failing, and there's a moment with one of the main characters who's going to school that he wants to become an engineer, but they're like, no, 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 we need farmers. We need to focus on surviving. So if you had an element of that here, of people, say, moving away from teaching or whatever, to being like, we need to just be turned into hunter-gatherers because there's a line about how they have to go further and further out on their expeditions to find food. 
we are basically in survival mode and all these sort of extraneous things of our culture have fallen away, unfortunately. But yes, instead we get the scenes of like them figuring out how to turn the flying vehicles on, which is just the most condescending thing because there's a set of instructions. You sit on the seat, then you plug in the crystal and turn it one quarter right and you put your hand on the thing. Turns out you need to put your hand on the thing and turn the crystal at the same time for it to turn on. And we're led to believe that no Atlanteans figured this out at any single point in their thousands of years. It's like, what? <laughs> what? Hello, I'd say. Yeah, have you tried turning it off and on again? Yeah, I mean, on the upside, at least Kita looks pretty unimpressed by Milo being smug about it. But like, that doesn't take away from the narrative fact of like, what's happening. I also I think, think, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think that this would, it's my turn to make a reference now. I think this would come across differently if, say, Milo was descended from Atlantean people that had like, for some reason, they weren't on Atlantis at the time. So like, there's a family legend in the way that like, in Castle in the Sky, the main character is descended from ancient Laputans. I think that if Milo had not been just a complete cultural outsider, if there'd been some reason why, you know, his grandfather was so obsessed with Atlantis and he's so obsessed with Atlantis, if there was a family history, if he was Atlantean very, like, distantly, I think it would have been a little bit less bad feeling. Still, it would have made no sense for them to forget, for the people that had already learned how to read at the time of the wave to have forgotten how to read. Yeah. But at least then it would be like, ah, this character who has been separated from their people finally coming home and bringing back like part of the culture with them. Something I want to say is that there's a weird imbalance in the characters because, like I said, we get 10 or so people, you know, we get all their backstories and everything. When we get to Atlantis, we only really interact with the king and Kida, we never meet any other Atlantean, and it would have been nice because, again, this movie, the pacing, everything, but there, <laughs> there's a moment where the king says, like, our rule is that we kill any outsiders. They're, they're not allowed to live, whatever. That never goes addressed again, and it would have been nice to see some kind of dueling factions within Atlantis because there is this dynamic setup between Kida and her father where Kida's like we need to grow our culture and the king's like no we need to protect our culture and insulate it and they have an, a bit of an argument which that's also very interesting never gets to de uh, developed after that so it would have been nice to have see more faces see more characters from Atlantis providing different perspectives whether like, this would be a silly option, but you could have, like, a mirror group to the explorers where you have the engineer type and the demolitions experts and the doctor, etc., etc. Like, there is a weird moment where when the king is dying, that Dr. Sweet is the one treating him. Does, does Atlantis have no doctors? Is anybody here a doctor? I am. Well, you're a nerd. No, because they're healed by their crystals. Yeah, but you Kida heals Milo with the crystal. I understand that, but you think that there would be an Atlantean taking care of the king, not this outsider. Yes. Just weird ways that the culture is not developed, and it feels very only skin deep as mm. a culture. And we don't see enough elements. We All the Atlanteans sort of operate as extras. And you see them cheering or going to the market and just going about their day-to-day -day lives. But you never interact with any of them. And you never hear any of their concerns. Again, interesting ideas about colonialism, about coming into another people's culture and either stealing from it or condescendingly trying to repair it but you never never hear the voices of the Atlanteans themselves so it it kind of rings 
hollow in a way to have this discussion because we never actually hear from the people being most affected by the actions of the characters. Yeah, I think the one, (laughs) there's one moment where it's just, it's bad animation. (laughs) But it's like, oh, I'm going to make another reference. Um, I always think about Full Metal Alchemist because it was kind of a big deal that that artist, whenever she drew background characters, would always draw a different face. No one in Full Metal Alchemist looks the same. And after reading that manga and getting to see that, which I think is really cool, so much work, like, kudos to her, it had me start looking at background characters more, and there's this moment. So when Rourke is leaving with Kida, and um, Milo is yelling at Audrey and Co, and then they come and support him, if you watch the faces of the background Atlanteans, they're just kind of placidly smiling back there. <laughs> like, nothing is is wrong. <laughs> It's really disturbing, actually. Their faces, like, don't change or react. They're just so clearly just stock characters to, like, fill in space. I didn't even notice that. But I was too distracted. Yes, I was not gonna (laughs) point it out to you. That scene was so confusing because we have this beautiful, elaborate scene of Kida turning into a crystal, basically. And she walks out and Rourke approaches her to, like, grab her. And Milo says, don't touch her. And then it jump cuts to them putting her into a cage. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? What? Huh? What? Huh? What's going on? How are they doing this? How are they getting away with this? This doesn't make any sense. What is happening here? What? How? Why? I have so many questions! There's also just a number of plot holes, but... But... Yeah, I didn't even notice. I mean, that's such a great point that like the level of attention, it's disappointing because the level of attention that's given to the city of Atlantis and the landscape of Atlantis, it is so lush and beautiful and everything feels so fleshed out. Well, sorry, keep going. No, please. Let's let's hear it. Well, I was going to say the the language of Atlantis was developed by the same guy who developed Klingon. Ah, Klingon. That was not a Klingon song. It's a full language. You can speak Atlantean. It's fully developed as far as like movie languages are. So like, Atlantean, fully developed language. Yeah. Unfortunately, the person we hear speak it most is Milo. And then we hear Kida and her father speak it a decent amount. But, like, we don't really hear the other Atlanteans speak it. Not even really in the background. Not only are they illiterate, but they're also mute, apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. They just never learn to speak. I'm glad you brought that up because there is that weird moment early on when they first encountered the Atlanteans and they figure out that Atlanteans for some inexplicable reason can speak every world language and they try to explain it off by saying oh yeah like Atlantean has the same linguistic roots as every other language and uh, Milo specifically references the Tower of Babel now I'm not sure if there's literally in, in this universe a Tower of Babel situation or if they're suggesting that like the Atlanteans are proto-humans and invented. Like pre-Tower of Babel humans? Yeah, like all humans are derived from them. So in that sense, all languages would be derived from Atlantean, which that's just, no, that just doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But it does, it seems to be touching on like there's something about Atlanteans themselves where they seem like the peak of humanity but they also seem perhaps like the origins of humanity I... <laughs> yeah I don't know I mean like I think it's it's interesting because like again you can see they're ambitiously trying to do something because they created this entire language because they were like the Atlanteans wouldn't speak English Glad you've addressed that animated movie instead of just, you know, magically magically having Pocahontas speak English. But then they have to come up with a way for them to speak English because 
they do not want half the movie to be in subtitles. And they need more characters than Milo to be able to interact with the Atlanteans. So that they come up with this bullshit explanation. Yes. Which is just true bullshit. That is my question about this movie. How much of these things that we, we've been talking about now for two hours, how much of this was intentional or and how much of it was just like, oh, Okay, just just stick that explanation there. Forget about it. we 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 only have ninety minutes. Hurry the f up, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And then we've just like, well, it's in the movie, so we have to discuss it as like that is an intentional part of this movie. And I feel like that's where we're getting a lot of these dead ends that we're going off on. Yeah, you know, this this script really could have used. So clearly, we know there's a first draft. And theoretically, there was a second draft that shrunk it down to 90 minutes. Probably could have used a third draft, at least. <laughs> yes. So let me just list off some of the plot holes. Because they're big, and I've watched this movie enough times that I noticed them all. A lot. So, like, the first one is The Shepherd's Journal. Uh-huh. So it's written in Atlantean, but it details how to get to underground Atlantis. How? How did anyone write that journal? after Atlantis sunk because they killed all outsiders that came. And also it's in Atlantean. Doesn't make sense. How did they even set up... Like, I guess it makes sense how they set up defenses. I guess if you believe that they didn't fully forget themselves. But then also, why didn't they just go out if they were able to get far enough to set up the Leviathan? Then there's just the, like, plot hole of why is Kida turned into the crystal? Yes, to defend Atlantis. But then once she's the crystal, she doesn't do anything to, like, stop Rourke or anything until the volcano erupts. So she does nothing, and we can talk about her getting turned into an animate object for the climax of the movie. Although she does save them from the volcano, she still has to be the damsel for Milo to rescue for the whole Rourke confrontation. There's also just the more minor plot hole of, like, if... Audrey and co. were going to rebel, why didn't they just attack and save Kida right then and there? Why did they just walk over to Milo? Why do this? I think I've got most of the big ones in just that rant. Plus, of course, the reading thing, which makes no sense. So I think part of the ambitiousness of this movie, they just kind of wrote themselves into corners in a number of places. Or they didn't have, perhaps there was a reason, for instance, why the Shepherd's Journal exists. Maybe Atlantis at one point was open to having people visit them down below, but then got shut off because things happened. Who knows? That's a whole thing. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't have the time or space to explain any of that. So it's just this big question mark that doesn't make sense. Oh, there's also the plot hole of, um, so if the grandfather got the journal on the expedition, which he did... Why didn't immediately he and Preston Whitmore begin planning for an expedition? Why did Preston hold on to the journal for so long before coming to Milo? Why did any of that, the time delays of that occur? I think I have an explanation for why. It's because okay. they were too busy kissing by the fireplace. Straight. To concentrate on anything else. So, yeah. I think a reason for a lot of these plot holes, it's worth mentioning that the the screenplay was written by one person, but the story was developed by six different people. And when you have six different set of hands on one story, typically things start to get a little messy. It's like um in high school, my friend and I, in our calculus class, instead of paying attention in class, what we would do is we would write stories on our graphing calculators the way we would do it is I would write one line, then hand him the graphing calculator. He would write one line, hand it back, and we'd just go back and forth like that. And let me tell you, anytime one of us attempted to take the story in a certain direction, it did not end up going in that direction because literally the next sentence, the other person would pull it somewhere else completely. So I feel like... <laughs> A lot of that is kind of happening in this movie where you, you see all these disparate elements coming together and it's like this big, massive Lego set and it doesn't quite fit. You can like make of it what you will and that's basically what we've been doing for two hours now. <laughs> and, uh, and 
Man, it's got Morgan, some interesting this movie pieces, is though. so fascinating. Yeah, it's so fascinating. You see why I wanted you to watch it. <laughs> so many elements of this are just amazing. And um, it, this is not <laughs> the sum is better than <laughs> its parts. Oh, definitely not. The parts are, are better than the sum here. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's just got a lot of elements that are very cool. Another element I just wanted to call out uh, really quickly, because I'm not sure whether we'll we'll get into talking about gender very much, because there are multiple very cool female characters in this movie, is, like, talking about the villains, Helga is in this cool position where, like, she's introduced as sexy femme fatale, and then transforms into uber cool lieutenant, which you're right, they do, like, pretty much nothing with. But the fact is, is that she gets to be shown to be this very feminine, sexy lady, and then gets to be shown to be a very competent second in command of this 200-something person expedition. Kicking lady, who, yes, is a villain, but also is just awesome. And gets to have her part in the climax, too, because uh, we didn't mention the balloon gets sabotaged by Milo, so they're losing air, so they're throwing things over to try and gain altitude. So Rourke ends up throwing Helga over. And the cool thing is, like, yes, he eventually he succeeds in kicking her off. But when he initially throws her over, she's able to catch herself and come back and kick him in the face a couple of times <laughs> before he manages to fully throw her over. And then from where she's lying, dying on the ground below, she's able to get off a final shot that completely means there's no way Rourke get to the top of the volcano. So, like... She is such a cool, just part, sitting there, (laughs) waiting for something to be done with. Yes. But unfortunately, she doesn't really get the time necessary to be more cohesive and be more than sort of a collection of very cool moments and character traits. Indeed. The question I have, of course, is, is her transition from femme fatale to bad army lady, was that intentional or was it just the fact that Six different people developed this story, and one wanted a really hot femme fatale in this movie, and then somebody else came and is like, nah, I'm changing her. So we end up with this hodgepodge of a character that, despite all of that, works. I came down the chimney. Ho, ho, ho. Like you said, we don't see enough of her to really have it take off. Yeah. You made a funny comment while we were watching that something like <laughs> like she's hotter than Jessica Rabbit. And it's like, I get it. She is very attractive. Just not enough. It's like a am swiping on a on a dating app and I see her profile and I get a good sense of like, oh, she seems interesting, but I don't actually know her yet. Mm. So definitely I'm going to swipe right to find out more, but I'm going to need to but go on a date. But you swipe right and you... There is no date because she never responds. Nothing happens. There is no more. There is. Only the profile. (laughs) We we exchange like two or three messages and then it's just radio silence from there. Yeah. And then I'm like, ah, well, another one bites the dust. Yeah. I guess, well, since I brought up gender and I clearly want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Um, I also just want to say, as much as, yes, Kida is very uh, sexualized, like we discussed earlier, and that's an issue and a problem, and, like, please let Kida not be objectified, she does, like, in an advancement of Pocahontas. Yes. One, there, she's clearly next in line for the throne. There's never any discussion of anyone else taking the throne. There's never any discussion of her marrying anyone. There is absolutely no discussion of Kida being romantic with anyone. We get some vibes with her and Milo, certainly. They have a hug after she comes down out of being the crystal. They hold hands. Ah, so cute. But they never kiss. And as they reach for each other... What? What? Now it's kissing again. You don't want to hear that. They never, there's no discussion of them being romantic. I mean, he's clearly attracted to her. That's very explicit textually. (laughs) But there's certainly no, you can read this as he decides to stay and they're good buds and it's not sexual. (laughs) If you so chose. I think definitely you're supposed to understand that they are romantic. But like she becomes queen at the end. She's the ruler of Atlantis. Well, yeah, that's and that's what I want to say, because I mean, I read it as romantic. It, to me, it's pretty obviously romantic. Yes. yes. And I get what you're I saying. 
it allows you to if you don't want to read it that way fine you're wrong but fine <laughs> but there's a thing that in other disney movies when romance is involved the independence of the character gradually is lost and at least i have this feeling that that you lose the character in the romance suddenly mm. all this character this character's identity it's only about the romance at this point we never have that moment kita remains herself even in the flirty moments and whatever you never lose her mission to save atlantis never gets derailed by the romance and i think that's that is something that like if you look at pocahontas the whole ending of that movie <laughs> is about pocahontas trying to save her boo trying to save her tribe and stop the fighting feels secondary to the fact that she just wants to make out with her boo and her boo might die. If you kill him, you'll have to kill me too. Daughter, stand back. I won't! I love him, father. Again, this movie, it does all the right things and all the wrong things at the same time. And I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, there is like, we briefly mentioned, she unfortunately like is inanimate for part of the climax. Right. So it's like, you both have like a female character who's like very determined, has a clear goal, has a clear, like independent state of being super smart, super when work tries to capture her. Um, she manages to fight off, like, three men who have guns until they finally overpower her. She's cool. She's awesome. She's kicking She has to be turned into a crystal for part of this climax. And, like, luckily, at least Audrey gets a part in, like, saving Kida. And I think even Packard gets to fly one of the little things, which, like, bizarre. Amazing. <laughs> so, like, yeah, there are, like, active female characters in the climax of the movie, and then she's the one who ultimately saves them from the volcano. So, like... Yay. Tell us how fun it is to have all this girl power. And that's the thing. It's hard to read because you could also read when Kida is turned into a crystal. I, it's a, it, There's a question of how much agency is involved in that choice mm -hmm. because her eyes turn blue and then she's drawn. And we saw that with like the mom. Didn't seem like the mom necessarily had a choice. She just got whooped up there and, and saved the day. And I think that, like, the king explicitly says they are taken. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. By the crystal. Yeah. But if she was given the choice, there is no doubt she would have done the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it fits exactly what she wants, her goal of saving Atlantis. And you can read it, too, as, like, because it's her and her mom who get taken. Right. Well, first of all, uh, the king says that someone of royal blood is always the one taken. So the idea is that her mom is actually was probably the queen. And her dad basically only was... Although he's the one who said he wanted to use the power, so it's all very confused. Well, well, I mean, I'm thinking it's like old school England kind of royalty stuff that's going on. There's definitely... Oh, uh, so they're like cousins. Yeah. I see. Sure, we can go with that. But <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to read it this way, in that like, why were the two women taken instead of the king like the idea of like women being the connection to the past being like that whole thing is cool. and it's powered by emotions you know like there there is something yeah that's actually a good point like the crystal like it's a feminine power source because it's powered by emotions right and by like the connection to the past and lineage and like women are very much even if you consider biologically like the the thread of connection to the past it's interesting <laughs> Mm, just like, <laughs> what do I do with it now? <laughs> I know, but it's so cool. Uh, and I suppose it's here I should mention that they were going to make like a whole TV series uh -huh. that like continued Atlantis and then like Atlantis flopped and Atlantis flopped hard. And so they just kind of like connected three episodes of what was going to be the TV series into a sequel, which I have seen and I've only seen once. And I, I don't recommend because none of the Disney straight to DVD sequels are good. So don't watch it. <laughs> I enjoyed Lion King one and a half. Oh, God. <laughs> 
I actually, to be fair, as a kid, really enjoyed Lion King 2, which is, which is Romeo and Juliet. I will fight you about Lion King 1 being Hamlet, but Lion King 2 is Romeo and Juliet. Hey, you said it. Lion King is Hamlet. <sighs> I'm going to edit that so it's it's you saying Lion King is Hamlet. So If you, if you do that, I will actually murder you. So, <laughs> And that's the third threat of murder on this podcast, I believe. <laughs> if you want to track. Uh, and I think they've actually all been about Lion King and Hamlet. So I'm pretty sure that's true. There you go. Anywho, going back to the to the main point, which I've sort of lost. Well, I guess just like that there was they had more ideas. There was going to be more to the story because like clearly they could not fit it all in this 90 minute movie. And so there was there were plans to continue with this TV series that were thwarted. You know what? A lot of great ideas. I mean, this film is just chock full of I mean, I guess we could talk about the influences i think you would know more about like what films or or media was directly influenced by this than i would but it would be cool to see this kind of have like a jodorowsky's Jodorowsky. dune effect where you see all these different elements i mean we are coming to the age where the kids who watch this are now adults and are now creators and i would be fascinated to see somebody who was deeply informed by this movie as a kid, come out and make something inspired by it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely having a a renaissance. I think I read an article where it's, I mean, people have talked about it. It's basically a cult classic now for certain segments of this population, as it is for me. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see, because they were really trying to, they were trying to create a new Disney formula. And they talk pretty explicitly about that. Of this, like, action-adventure movie. Do you know how the... Disney movies... ...first came to being? They were... ...original ones. ...taken by the dark powers. Tortured and mutilated. A ruined and terrible form of life. And now... And they failed hard, and then Treasure Planet, which I think was the other attempt at that, also failed hard. So we never got that, but it would be interesting to see if Disney, or anyone else, because it doesn't have to be Disney, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, was now looking at this, you know, what, almost 20 years on? It'll be having its 20th anniversary this coming year? And we're like, hey, let's give this another whirl now that, you know... (laughs) The really, <laughs> really hard attempts are out of the way. And now that kind of like, it's super relevant. This movie is relevant to so many things that are like in our cultural consciousness right now. So I, I have never heard of anything being influenced by this movie at this point. I've heard of people who are influenced by it, but I haven't heard anyone call it out as an influence on a movie yet. But I do think that day will come. I'm ready for it. As are we all. I'm very curious because like while we were watching it, I did make a Moana reference. <laughs> I don't think Moana no. necessarily pulled anything from this movie, but I think you could definitely connect the dots in the sense of like how certain characters are portrayed and this uh, conflict of either staying at home and sort of isolating yourself versus going out and trying to save your culture and and expand your yeah, culture. Yeah, cultural decay. Yeah. She's like, we came from Voyagers, so like that part of their culture's been forgotten and she gets to go and reclaim it. Right. Yeah, I guess Moana is in some ways like if Kita had been the main character of this movie. Right, right, right. There are some similar- similarities there for sure. Well, and even, I mean, uh, different, but like Maui coming in and being the one to like steal a powerful stone from their culture that's female-coded, like... Uh, yeah, I, maybe maybe there are some influences there. There's definitely some crossover. In fact, you know what? People were calling Moana like New Pocahontas. Maybe we should be calling it New Atlantis. We got to track down the writers and, and interrogate them. Be like, where did you get these ideas from, you punk? <laughs> Give credit to Atlantis. I know that Disney wants everyone to forget about this movie, <laughs> but you're going to say you were influenced by it. You know what I'm so mad about, though, with Disney forgetting about this movie? Mm. They were going to make a ride. And I really think Atlantis <laughs> has multiple scenes that would like be a great theme park ride. And because this movie flopped, 
They're not. And also, Kida doesn't get to be uh, a Disney princess. And she should be, because she's great. Disney. That's the main takeaway from all this. <laughs> but yeah, I, I suppose before we finish off, one thing we haven't talked about that I know, like, I saw you in the corner while watching this movie. There were certain scenes where you were rocking back and forth in a very dancing? zen mode. Yes, dancing, because you love this soundtrack. Yes. Actually, we should talk about the soundtrack and the animation before we wrap oh, up. Oh, sure. But yes, I, I mean, the the big thing of the soundtrack is I think it's great. <laughs> like, I think if you listen to the music, it's great. And obviously, like, for me, this soundtrack is what the Star Wars soundtrack is to many people. It has that element of, like, nostalgia and wonder and amazement, etc. Um, and I highly recommend, like, even if you don't want to watch the movie, listen to the soundtrack. I think it's good. But uh, you mentioned the animation earlier. And so I think, like, a moment of pause on the animation, because I think, again, like, the animation here is so different than, like, typical Disney animation. I think they were going much more, like, stylized. And it really works in some places. Oh, and they, they mixed it with CGI. Just a decent amount. I think this is one of the, one of the first big experiments. To do, to do that, yeah. Yes. Which, like, works out pretty cool for, like, we mentioned before, the crystal sequences. The, yeah, saving Atlantis. And then I think the ship is also CGI. That's cool. But also, there's definitely, like, some goofiness occasionally with, like, character models. Yeah. That doesn't quite fit with how gorgeous everything else is. Especially because they decided to really go the whole hog with Milo being a dork. There are just some moments. <laughs> there's something about the faces of characters that it's weird. Like, the, the ending sequence in particular with Rourke fighting Milo on the hot air balloon. Rourke, this entire movie, has been a very in-control guy, very methodical. Like, yeah, he's he's a villain. He he has that dumb, dumb line where he's like, I love it when I win. Yeah. So silly. I love that line. But uh, at the end, when everything's going awry, he looks insane. And it's like, <laughs> eyes are bugged out. It is completely different than any look that has been drawn onto his face before. And and it's just weird. It feels like the lead animator was sick that day. And they just like, they went over to the Scooby-Doo offices and they're like, look, dude, it's so odd. And then I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to disagree with me here, but Audrey's lips look so janky. It looks like a kid drew on lipstick and it just feels very sloppy. It, I, I, go ahead. I would say it depends on the scene. There are definitely scenes where I'm like, ooh, someone didn't do right by Audrey's <laughs> lips. There are scenes where it's like totally fine and it works. But I find that with like pretty much all the characters' faces. There are just scenes where they work and then scenes where like they don't. Something's off. <laughs> Neither of us are animators, so don't look to us for analysis as to why that's the case. We just know something's wrong. Yeah. There's a... The scene where Kida, I think, is recounting, like, her past... I'm pretty sure her face looks different there than, like, in any other scene with Kida. And, like, Milo's probably the worst offender because sometimes Milo's face just looks weird. <laughs> but that's also because, like, they really just go... They, I think, couldn't fully decide whether they wanted full comic dork Milo or, like... They wanted him to, like, evolve. Yeah. So sometimes he's just more of a, like, comic character, like, comically drawn character than he is, like, the lead of your movie. Yeah. I think you've nailed it. I think that's the, the main issue is that so much of this movie, the way it's drawn, feels so grounded. I mean, fantastical things are happening. There's a giant mm -hmm. Leviathan robot. Jimmy Christmas. It's a machine. There is this giant city underwater. Welcome to Bikini Bottom. There's this amazing submarine, but you see all the inner workings of everything. The physics all operate relatively normally. It all feels very grounded. But then there are moments, and I think this is part of why I hated the mole character so much, because he is by far the most cartoony character. Yes. There are moments where things do feel cartoony, and I think that is reflected in the animation. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about, with Milo especially, 
There's the scene where he's talking to Sweet after the king has died. And he's listing all of the things he's done that are f***ed up. And he does this really ridiculous, like he's flailing. But it's not like comically done. It's like the way someone who is slightly awkward would angrily gesticulate and move if they were really frustrated with themselves. And it's like... It's how you would flail. <laughs> yes, it's how I would flail. And and Milo looks super grounded in real that mm-hmm. entire scene. When he's walking out, you can tell the change in his body language. Yeah. That he's decided to take on this role. It's really cool. And so I think about that and I'm like, if they could have just, they could have had him be spastic and ridiculous, but have it be more grounded throughout the whole thing. Like he was in that moment of like anger and grief and despair. They, they could have taken that and done like, you know, him and doing like pratfalls or whatever they wanted, <laughs> but kept it in that style. But there's definitely moments where he's just um, ridiculous <laughs> and other moments where they do like the body humor things that are with other characters that are just absurd and not grounded. And you can tell, <laughs> like, I always think about like mole <laughs> and I think about like how the trend was at this point that you had to have like little animal sidekicks in yeah. Disney movies. <laughs> and it really feels like with like his animation and his character and everything <laughs> that they were like, well, we don't have an animal, uh, but we do have this character. Uh, He's French. So it's basically the same uh, thing. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> right. Of course. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? That's that's with the the animation, but the style is super interesting. And I actually do like recommend like if you can look up a YouTube clip of like, I don't know, the end of Atlantis or even the beginning of it. I think it's interesting look at to look at from a stylistic standpoint because I think unfortunately, at least with Disney animation, at this point we're like fully in everything CGI. I mean everyone's yeah, and everyone makes the joke about how Anna and Elsa's faces are, like, the exact same as, like, Rapunzel's and, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely not not the case with this this style of animation. And even not, like, people will, I think, also joke that, like, in terms of how they're drawn, like, Belle and Jasmine and Ariel and all of them kind of look vaguely similar. Like, there's definitely more differences, but vaguely similar. The female characters in this movie look nothing like each other. The male characters look nothing like each other. There's clear markers of each character's race or like different things going on. So I think it's really, when they're doing it well, it's gorgeous. When they're doing whatever they're doing on their time off, uh, it's, it's less so. But it's definitely interesting, which is really the moral of our entire discussion of this movie. Yes. My concluding thoughts on this movie. It sucks. But it's interesting, and I can see why people love it. And I think, as a general statement, just to put out there, you can disregard it. Having watched the videos that you sent me and having read around about it, there's so much angst to be like, this is an imperfect masterpiece. This is better than you remember it was. It is not a masterpiece. It is not better than you remember it was. Just own it. It sucks. (laughs) And you love it. There is nothing wrong with that. We're I'm going to be experiencing that very thing next time when we when we do my birthday episode. It is fine. Love what you love. You don't have to defend it to me. Keep watching Atlantis. Go for it. I think I will. I will piggyback on that and say, I mean, I don't agree. It sucks. But (laughs) I will piggyback and say that I think that there there are different types of bad There's, like, bad where it's just, like, the most generic, boring thing, and it fails in really boring ways. Yeah. And you're like, "Eh, eh, (laughs) Uh what is this? Like, why did I waste my time? There's also bad where, like, people just, they went really hard. (laughs) They really tried. They really had ambitions. They really were, like, thinking about things and trying to say things, and maybe they were limited by their production company, maybe they were limited by their medium, their time, whatever they were limited by. Or maybe they just like couldn't bring all of those elements together just because they couldn't do it. And that kind of bad, I think, is is beautiful. It's interesting. I love it. It's like, those are the kind of movies I want to watch. I would rather, so much rather watch ambitious failures yes, than like mediocre successes. <laughs> I think... Atlantis is better than like five million Little Mermaids <laughs> because Little Mermaid is a is a very good movie. 
the pacing's good, the music's good, there is nothing wrong with that movie. I mean, it's not feminist in any way, shape, or form. But, like, you know, it is a good movie. I think it's hard to argue Little Mermaid is a bad movie. But you know what? <laughs> it's kind of boring in its goodness. It's just, like, fine. Atlantis is interesting. And you know what? Like, I really think in some ways that's that's the highest praise you can give to a movie is that it's interesting and you're interested by it. Agreed wholeheartedly. Give me Atlantis every day of the week over any Marvel film, any current Disney film. I would rather watch this a hundred times in a row than watch the new Mulan a single time. Oh, God. (laughs) I think that's just a bad failure, bad. Or anything. The new Aladdin, the new Lion King, the new Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Give me something new. Give me something interesting. Show that you care. Like, it is so clear that the people making this film care. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Even when it sucks, I don't mind (laughs) because I'm watching something interesting. And you're right. That is honestly the biggest praise you can. I mean, it can feel like a backhanded compliment sometimes. Yeah. But it's a lot better of a backhanded compliment than this was well made. (laughs) Yes. If you have an enemy who is a prolific writer or creator or whatever, and you really want to destroy that person, praise them by saying... The thing you made was well made. And leave it at that. So on that note. (laughs) On that note. (laughs) Thank you again for watching this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for introducing it to me. Happy birthday, Morgan. You're a swell partner in all this. And uh, can't wait to have you roast me for my childhood tastes next time. Indeed. All right. Well, until next time. Hasta la vista. Under the sea, each little snail here know how to whale here. That's why it's hotter under the water. Yeah, we can look here, down in the fuck here under the sea.